Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. You know, when I have a large project at home, sometimes it makes sense to do it by myself. At other times, I actually save money in the long term and have a much better solution if I use an expert. It's really not that much different with church planning. Church planners who focus on building their core team and actually planting the church and partner with portability experts like Portable Church Industries hit the ground running. Yes, you may have to raise more funds up front, but let me tell you something. If I could go back in a time machine and do one thing different in all the churches that I planted, I would go back and have invested that money in Portable Church and all of the super cool kit that they give you to make the volunteers and their lives much, much easier. Trust me, your volunteers will feel invested in, and they're going to give you more of what they got. And that time where people are setting up is going to be a time where it sets the atmosphere for you to thrive. If you're thinking about launching in the next six to 36 months, we encourage you to check them out at portablechurch.com. Hey, Church Planner, this is Peyton Jones. Welcome to Hardcore Church Planning. And my guest today is author and former missiology lecturer at Wheaton, John H. Armstrong. And before I welcome him and he, and he says hello and that good stuff, let me just say that, um, from a young age when I was, gosh, maybe 19 years old, just cutting my teeth in ministry, uh, John had a publication called Reformation and Revival. And I read that stuff and a fire grew in my bones every single, uh, month or, or how I can't even remember how often it came out, if it was quarterly, but I remember reading those things cover to cover and just being excited. And I even remember that at some point, somehow I got a stack of back copies even. And I would just read that stuff. So, uh, from a fanboy, uh, to your efforts, uh, John H. Armstrong, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to, to be with you. And it's a pleasure that, uh, mutual friends of ours have connected us. And, uh, so much of our journey is interconnected, as you've already indicated. Absolutely. We have this crazy friend named Andy Froyland, uh, that we share, which says we're both a little bit nuts. But hey, the first question we like to ask, John, is how did you come to faith? Well, I grew up, uh, Peyton, in a Christian home, in a truly, genuinely Christ centered home. Uh, my dad was a dentist professionally and uh, grew up, uh, Without a mother who died when he was an infant and without a father who essentially his grandmother took him and raised him uh, in a Methodist church in a small place in Arkansas. And my mother was the ninth of nine children and also a very godly home. Her, her father was a farmer and uh, they met and my dad went to dental school, served in World War II, had two sons. Uh, we lived in Middle Tennessee uh, where my dad practiced dentistry until I went to college. And uh, so at age six, 
Um, I very distinctly, I was never decisioned or led through some formulaic prayer. Uh, I was very concerned about the well-being of my soul, and I asked my mother uh, about how did I find peace with God. And uh, I still have in my study where I sit uh, in uh, on a wall a, a kind of an, a rugged-looking piece of what is a cross that was put on an old flannel board. Most people won't even know what a flannel board is. That's three generations of props ago. And uh, it's what my mother used to explain the cross to me in the narrow way and the broad way. And it was there that I saw uh, that I needed to follow Jesus. That that was and, like uh, what coffee is to businessmen. That was, you know, it was that to Sunday school teachers in, in yes, times past. Yes. Flannel, flannel boards. Just a little known factoid. My first book, uh, there's a company that makes video summaries of people's books and what cracked me up is when they made it, they literally for church zero, cha-ching, that's a rule. I have to say cha-ching if I mention my book. Um, it literally was done on a flannel graph. Huh. Very interesting. <laughs> well, that's how I came to faith was my mother presenting the gospel to me on a flannel graph. How cool is and, that? You know, and, and I, I can say I never, uh, it's not a boast. It's, it's a tribute to grace. I never went through a period of intense rebellion. I mean, I questioned intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, but I never went through a period of hostility or opposition to my parents. Uh, remember, this is the 1960s to authority. Um, I just simply believed that Jesus was my Lord and I was to follow him and my parents loved me and I honor, I should honor them. So I'm really a freak uh, when you think about the 1960s. Uh, and all the rebellion that marked the 1960s, I was in college in that era and was never a rebel. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of guys my age in their late 60s in that era that say, no. I was never a rebel. <laughs> no, but the important question is, did you listen to David Bowie? Uh, no, actually. Oh, I, was, I was probably too sheltered. for. I mean, I knew who he was. I, I listened to him, but I wasn't a homeboy. Sure. I, I, I get you. I get you. So, okay. So uh, one of the things I didn't know until we actually were chatting before this is that you were a church planner. I knew that you were in the RCA and I knew some other things about you. I never knew you were a church planner. So tell me a little bit, um, kind of what your journey in ministry and church planning has been. Uh, it's that I'd love to. Um, I grew up, as I said, in the South. And so my roots, not surprisingly, were church wise, were Southern Baptist. Um, and my brother went to Baylor, which is sort of the flagship Southern Baptist College, and then to med school. But I, I went to the University of Alabama, and my first year at the University of Alabama in 1967, I met Campus Crusade for Christ and really got involved in evangelism. I mean, in a way that I had, I'd always wanted to be involved, but I'd always felt guilty or un unable or unequipped. And so Campus Crusade was a turning point in the spring of 1968. Uh, when I went on spring break and began to share Christ and see kids uh, engage with me about the gospel. And that fired me up to go in the ministry, which I had earlier in my life felt God was calling me. And uh, I said to my parents, can I, can I transfer to a Christian school to get a better education? And uh, that led me to come to Wheaton College in uh, near Chicago region. And uh, while I was in Wheaton, in my last year, I began to think about the pastorate more particularly. I took a, a call to be a youth pastor at Wheaton Bible Church. And then uh, when that time ended, um, after uh, a short stint of pastoring a little blue-collar Southern Baptist uh, church, uh, I met a series of events, but I met someone who wanted to plant a church in a new suburb of Chicago that was growing fast. 
And uh, we teamed up. We had a whole bunch of evaluations and meetings. And I was there was this is a denomination that's uh, called uh, Converge today or the Baptist General Conference. And I was the first church planter in 1972 that they had ever trained and equipped and sent out to plant a church from zero. I mean, we had no nucleus, no home groups, nothing. We just went in, did demographics, did door to door, had an Easter Sunday service, launched a church. And so for four years from 1972 to 1976, I was a church planter in a fast growing suburban community on the front edge of what by the 80s became a, a whole wave of church planters coming out of school and spreading across the country. No way. So you're you're like one of the uh, the guinea pigs. Of I was in, in my denomination. I was a first. And honestly, as much as say Southern Baptists have done in the last twenty years in church planting, they were not planting churches this way either. Now they do. It's like, I mean, I had nothing to do with it. I just did it. But the point is, I did it kind of ahead of any curve or traditions that are now norm. You know, and it's so funny because to talk to church planters way back then. You know, kind of like the hipster, you know, saying, Hey, I did this before it was cool. Yeah. Um, it yeah, it is cool. It does make it way more cool because, you know, now it's kind of like hip and sexy and like, you know, it's flashy and yeah. it's not yeah. on the ground, but it, but it, because everyone's talking about it, it yeah. has that kind of thing. And then you quickly get into it and realize, Oh my gosh, this is terrible. You know, which is why I always tell people is, hey, it sucks. You know, you you have a podcast and you have a network of friends and you talk and support each other. I had no one. I mean, I didn't even have a professor or a church leader or another church planter I could sit down and talk to about what I was about to do. It was that out of the box. Right. Yeah. So so what's cool is, you know, hopping into this, you've got a book now. Which, um, like I said, you're a veteran church planner. You've got a book. It's called Costly Love. Now, just know this. It's John H. Armstrong. So if you look for this, guys, it's, you know, you got to put the H. Otherwise, there's like other famous John Armstrongs, like a model railroad builder. We're laughing about how, like, for me, if you look up Peyton Jones, the .com and .org are taken by a famous computer scientist and a new age guru. So that's why it's PeytonJones.ninja. But for John, it's John H. Armstrong. And... His new book is called Costly Love. John, tell us why you wrote this book. Mm. Well, I wrote it because from the days I've just described in my early Christian experience as as a child, through my preparation and formation and education and church planting, and then from being a church planter, I came back to the town where I went to college to Wheaton, Illinois, And I spent 16 years pastoring there, basically relaunched a church that was all but dead. So that's a whole nother issue. Mm. But in all of that experience and then out into an itineracy, which began 26 years ago, I realized that for all of the debate and contesting about methods and doctrines and ways of doing church and all of this, we, we, I'll just say me, I was in grave danger. In fact, I say in the book, I went through a period of time in which I lost my attachment, my affection for the love of God and how the love of God was actively working in me to help me and empower me to love others. Mm. So that began a journey. I wouldn't have called it what I call it now, of course, in my 30s and 40s. But um, now I recognize that it, it is, as many say today, it is 
the basic core of Jesus's kingdom teaching is that he calls us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. The core commandment of the kingdom of God is to love one another as he has loved us. And the way we demonstrate to the world that new covenant, new commandment love is to even love our enemies. And therein you have the call to discipleship and the gospel of the kingdom. So uh, I believe it's as basic as that. I believe that the second thing that that made me write the book was that I think that love is probably the most abused word, both in the culture and inside the church. Right. Uh, people use love for everything from emotion to to feeling good about a service to all kinds of stuff. And uh, what uh, what impacted me years ago was a lot of reading in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I caught the idea that in Germany, in the time of Nazism and Bonhoeffer's life, that what the church uh, had lost in Germany was what Bonhoeffer would call costly grace or the cost of discipleship. And it's my thesis, Peyton, that what the American church has lost is the cost of love. We don't. We think you can love without death, but you can't love until you die and then rise with Christ in the power and newness of his love. Oh, that's profound, man. That's really say that last statement again, if you don't mind. That's that needs to be repeated. We cannot love as God has commanded us to love as Christians until we die, die to ourselves, die to our ambitions, die to our agenda, die to how we think about people and respond to people. We can't love the way he's told us to love and empowers us to love until we die. And then when we die, we are raised to newness of life. And we don't, we don't, we, Paul says we put on love, but in a way that's the same as putting on Christ or abiding in Christ or being seated with Christ or being in union with Christ. Those are all good Pauline terms. Yeah. When we're in Christ, the love of God is poured into us and through us into others. We can't manufacture love. We can't uh, say, oh, I'm going to go on a crash course and start loving people. Um, It really is about Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you love others. And I mentioned to you before we started, you asked me who had, who are figures that were seminal in my life, you know, outside of say my parents and a few people like that. And the person who I think taught me this the most in my early days in my twenties was reading the life story of the evangelist, George Whitfield. And what attracted me to Whitfield was not just that I loved his doctrine and his preaching and his passion, but that I loved the fact that George Whitfield was a lover, Mm. um, not a fighter. He was a lover and he loved John Wesley, whom he disagreed with profoundly on some things. Who was a fighter. <laughs> who was more of a fighter. That's, that's true. John Wesley was a more tenacious. And, and, you know, we don't have a Whitfieldian denomination today. But after Wesley died, we have a Methodism of a denomination. Yeah, and that really says a lot about the funny. two men. I'm not interested in denominations. I'm more like Whitfield. I'm more interested that Christ be lifted up. I was just reading a biography of Wesley the other day where um, he's standing before Oglethorpe. And they're... <laughs> They've got this whole council in their town, and please just leave. Like, yeah. all of yeah. us are in agreement. We don't want to be abused by you anymore. Like, he was, <laughs> he was just so cantankerous. And, uh, and this judge, they called him before a judge because he was so rude and causing yeah. so many problems in this town that, uh, he, he wrote in his journal, he said, all, all I could do was say, thank you for your honesty and mm. shut up and leave. <laughs> Yeah. And, and then, of course, after, struck after home, but, but you were saying after, about, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, after he had his, his so-called Aldersgate conversion, what's interesting about this story, of course, is that he comes 
to a profound understanding, and, and some of the elements may not be elements everyone agrees with, about the perfection of love, but I engage this in my book, Peyton, and, and I think John Wesley, understanding, for example, the Sermon on the Mount as a call to divine love is absolutely correct. I think God taught Wesley a lot of profound things after that experience in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And so, John, as I'm listening to you, like, what comes to mind is exactly what you just brought up with the Aldersgate experience, which of our listeners don't know because you don't read church history, shame on you. Um, John had this experience with the Holy Spirit. Some say that's when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Some say that's when he was converted. Um, John saw that as his conversion. But the, the, the question is, f- flesh and blood does not reveal these things to you. Like wh- what you just said was so profound that I had you repeat it. And my next natural question is, John, there's a story behind that. Like you, you don't come to that realization just by reading. Like there's some, like, like Wesley, there's some experiences, some, some hard fought lessons that kind of help you come to that realization, kind of like a two by four smacked against your head. What was that for you? Mm, Good question. Um, and I was, hit with a two before and uh that two before was um living out my my calling especially from 1992 to about 1996 with um a number of christian leaders who had a vision of reforming the church which i also had and as i began to watch how i was acting and how we were acting as a group towards other christians um, I, I felt the Holy Spirit. He really got my attention in a number of ways. He got my attention directly through uh, what I was pondering and experiencing. But believe it or not, even three profound dreams over the course of about three years in which I saw myself becoming a loveless Christian and uh, becoming known for what I was opposed to and for being a, a argumentative, more like the John Wesley we were talking about. And uh, God called me, uh, literally called me to a place to give everything up where I would be required to die to my ambitions and my ministry and successes and all that I was about and just go out and wait on God until he taught me how to love. And that's what he did. I mean, I'm shortening a long story, but that's what happened. Interesting. Interesting. Well, what what would be the kind of... Um, premise of the book and how do you unpack it? What's the kind of breakdown of costly love? Well, um, when I began to write, uh, the breakdown for me was, was fairly simple and I've already referred to it once. I can summarize it briefly. And that is that, uh, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he quoted the Shema of Israel to say, it's to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. That was my beginning point. Uh, and it was my beginning point because that's how Jesus uh, applied the Shema and the story of the Old Testament to the to the kingdom of God and the becoming of the kingdom in his person. But then in John's gospel, as I've alluded to in chapters 13 to 17, when he's in the upper room with his disciples on the last evening Uh, In the 13th chapter, he teaches his disciples. He models first what that love looks like by serving them, by washing their feet. And then in John 13, 34, he 
says, this is the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the key is, well, what did Jesus do? How did he love? What was the way he loved his own disciples? Mm. And that's that was the second major hook for me. And the third was these commandments in the Gospels, which appear in the Sermon on the Mount and several other places, that we are to love our enemies. And I realized I really had not thought or pondered or gone deeply into what does it mean to love your enemies? Who are my enemies? Why are they my enemies? How do I love them? What does it mean to love my enemies? Does it mean to just overlook faults and flaws? You know, how do you do that? Right. So those those three hooks, the Shema, the new commandment, and love for your enemies became the three things that drew me into the question of what does it mean to love God, love my neighbor, and love one another? And uh, so I set out five years ago, Peyton, to write this book, and I thought, honestly, that I could write it in a year, uh, and it took me five years. Um, And the reason for that was I found that I had not even begun to explore the depths of what it meant for me. And at one point, I gave up. I was just going to tell people, read these three books. They're better than anything I could write anyway, which they still are. But my wife said, but you haven't told your story and your story is your story. And it has some unique aspects to it from your background and how you came to this understanding of costly love and how you lived it or tried to live it and continue to try to live it. And uh, so that was what was behind the book. That's why I wrote it. And uh, I think, therefore, I'll say this in, in a summary fi- uh, finished statement to your question. Uh, I said to my older brother, who's a wonderful Christian, retired doctor, I said, Tom, I've done 14 books, but this is the first one that I've written that I can comfortably say I've written an account that actually answers the question, what would Jesus do? (laughs) What would he do? What would he have us to do? How does he want us to live? This book answers that question, and it answers it in a way that you might disagree with an illustration or how I might say something or word it. But the thesis of my book, I don't see how any Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Charismatic, Evangelical, I don't see how any Christian could disagree with the basic premise of this book. I don't see how you can if you're following Jesus. Yeah, and, you know, let's be honest. The world's a little bit short on love right now. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, the place where we ought to be turning to, um, Christian circles, it's it's not exactly white hot there either. So, um, you know, it is timely, and I think that um, we're, we're not honest in the church about our anger. You know, the anger that, that resides within us. I, I think as people, we, we grow up and, you know, anger problems abound, but it's kind of interesting when, when you, when you put a religious veneer over an anger problem, it somehow slides back as a little more except, well, he's standing for truth or, well, you know, he's, it's righteous indignation. And what you really find is people are just then religious jerks instead of just being jerks. And so to be honest, like when I hear that, I go, yeah, this is good. This is the good stuff right here. They, they have that old saying about John that they used to bring him in on his little chair in Ephesus and set him down in the room and they'd wait to hear this word of wisdom. And he would say, love one another. And then, you know, that would be it. He'd be done for the day, you know, 90 something years old. And, uh, and, and someone asked him once, why just that? And he said, because if you did, just that, um, it would be enough. Yeah, yeah. What, what, it's, inter- it's interesting, isn't it? That that 
by the second, third, and fourth century, the Christian church, in one way, rightly turned to the opposition to the gospel of Christ to answer questions about the nature of Christ. Was he both human and divine? To answer the questions of, is there one God, but there's a concept that we call the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the church gave itself confessionally and creedly to answering those questions. And in no way would I say that was a mistake. But in the process, and I say this in the book, and I'll say it and say it and keep saying it. In the process, if you read the creeds and you read the confessions, there's nary a mention of love in any of it. And uh, I have a pastor friend who's written a book that parallels mine, except he stays kind of focused on 1 Corinthians 13. And his whole burden of his book is to try to show that we are creedless Christians because the creed of love is absent from our practice and faith. Right. Wow. That's good stuff right there, brother. So, okay. So going to um, talk about, uh, because we're out of time now, the book again is Costly Love. And that was a really good kind of poignant um you know, hard hitting little point, um, kind of like a, a, a nail, just bam, that one hit on the hammer, um, that we're going to leave that with John, where can they get the book? Well, you should be able to get it anywhere. You can buy books. You know, most people are going to go probably first to Amazon, uh, and it's there. And, uh, you, there's also a website that we've created called costlylove.com. There's a real short 90-second video in which I tell why I wrote the book and who I wrote it for. Um, there's a number of podcasts and interviews and videos there about the book. Um, and we're just about to launch an effort uh, particularly targeted at millennial readers, we hope. Uh, we're about to launch an effort to create a triad, small groups of three people over coffee or a meal in different locations around the country who will try the book. and. What, we're, what I'm trying to say when I do this, Peyton, is that this is not a book to be read alone. If you're going to process it, how do you love if you don't love somebody? I mean, yeah, you know, when I read books about loving people, it all looks so good in my head. Yes, exactly. And, and when I got married, I remember thinking I was a pretty holy dude until I got married. And then I was in for a rude awakening. I'm yeah. not a very loving person. I thought I was way more loving than I actually am. Well, that's rad. So, uh, again, guys, you can get these books anywhere, uh, Christian books are, are, are sold. You can go to the website and remember it's John H. Armstrong if you're searching for him. Well, hey, that's all the time we have, but wanted to say, um, we have one last question that we ask every guest and it's tailor made to fit you. Although the question changes, the cameo, I mean, the question stays the same. The cameo changes and our question today, and it's kind of hard to ask you this, John, especially after what we've been discussing. But this is hardcore church planning. We always get into this. And it is, if you were to get in a physical fist fight with Leslie Newbigin, who would win? <laughs> uh, I think by what I know about him and his size, and uh, I don't know. I mean, wait. he he was not what – it doesn't appear to me to be a robust physical specimen – I'm not a weightlifter, but I do. I'm a pretty bit of an exercise freak for 68, and I'm healthy, so maybe I would win. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I, I think I, I like that you just kind of 
You sized him up, found his weakness, and said, "We don't even need to talk about my strength." Yeah, I could take him, but I don't. I don't want to humiliate him because, as you said before the podcast, uh, one of your huge influences. So um, we don't want to humiliate Leslie. You know, um, you know. <laughs> hey, he's got a girl's name as it is. So yep. you know that wasn't very loving of me. Look, see, I told you I wasn't very loving. I need your book. So. <laughs> Anyways, my guest today has been John H. Armstrong, super big appreciator uh, for for many years of the impact you've had on me. Thanks for coming onto the show today. Thank you, Peyton. God bless you and your listeners, too. All right, guys. Well, hey, this has been Hardcore Church Planting. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.